Genesis 11, 27 to 12, 3. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Second passage, Genesis 15, 1-21. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a, th a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring shall be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, 
the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Passage number 3, Romans 4, 17 to 25. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. We had our uh, Lenten service on Wednesday. It was uh, great to have a number of you here. I know some of you weren't able to make that. I'm going to be sending out an email tomorrow with some information about Lent and how we're going to be celebrating it together. I don't know if you actually celebrate Lent, observing Lent uh, together uh, as a congregation, have some resources, a devotional uh, that we've used in the past, a link to the sermon from Wednesday. Uh, and then we're uh, calling the congregation to a Lenten fast on Fridays, which is traditional uh, in uh, the Christian tradition for the season of Lent. So more information about all of that, watch for your email uh, tomorrow. But we're continuing on through Lent in our sermon series, All Things New, the story of the Bible and the healing of the world. And we're tracing the overarching story of the Bible. And so far, since January, when we started it, we've been focusing on the beginnings. That's kind of been the section that we've been in, Genesis 1 through 11, focusing on the beginnings. But we began a new phase on Wednesday at the Lenten service in the series, a new phase of the series uh, called the Patriarchs. And this covers the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons, who then become the 12 tribes of Israel. And the age of the patriarchs takes place, really, we could say, after Noah's flood, which Pastor John um, uh, spoke on last week, and then before Moses's great law. So sandwiched between uh, the flood and the law is the age of the patriarchs. And really, if you're looking in your Bible, it's from Genesis 12 to the end of Genesis really is the age of the patriarchs. So that's what we're focusing on here in the next uh, number of weeks. And in many ways, the story of the Bible begins now in earnest. So Genesis 1 through 11 is a bit of the prologue. It's the, it's the backstory. It's the, it's the context setting to get you ready for when the story really begins. So if you've ever seen Lord of the Rings, I'm always mentioning Lord of the Rings, but if you've ever seen Lord of the Rings, the movie, right, at the very beginning of that uh, trilogy, uh, you have kind of the voice of Galadriel mysteriously speaking, the world has changed, right? And she goes back and she recounts thousands of years of Middle Earth history to get you ready for the opening events of the Shire. Uh, 
Well, that's a bit of what's going on in Genesis 1 through 11, right? The, the, the text is giving us kind of the backstory of all that's gone on in the past to get us ready for the opening then of the main act, of the curtain coming up, and we're not in the Shire, but we are with Abraham in the desert. And so today's sermon focuses on Abraham and his family and the beginning then really of the story of the Bible being worked out in earnest. Today's sermon is about hope, which candidly, I think, can be in short supply uh, in our broader culture. One ancient historian remarked that hope is prodigal by nature, and I think that that can often be the case. The things we put hope in just seem to escape us, and hope escapes with them. But we can't live without hope. It's one of the core needs of the human being. Like, we need air, we need water, we need food, we need hope. It's a psychological need. We cannot live without hope. So my prayer for you all and for myself this morning is that we would be reminded again about the hope that we have in Christ. Not just the great hope for the last day, but how that hope breaks into the here and the now. So if you're a Christian this morning, then let me invite you through the story of Abraham to consider afresh the hope that God holds out to us in Jesus. If you're not a Christian this morning, then let me invite you to consider as well the hope that God holds out to you in Jesus. And I would challenge you to consider where you're putting your hope if you're not putting your hope in God's gift of Jesus. What are you hoping in amidst the trials of this life. Abraham's story teaches us two important truths about hope. So we're going to divide the sermon into two, and each section is going to take one of these important truths. Before we get going, let me just say a brief word here about how Abraham's story fits into this larger story of the Bible that we're telling. Abraham is one of the most important figures of the Bible. He shows up all the time particularly in the New Testament. The New Testament's conception of salvation is largely built upon the promises that God has made to Abraham and Abraham's story. So Abraham just isn't just one more story in the Bible, but he's, a, he's the fountainhead, really, of the, the redemptive purposes that God is working out. And we need to understand uh, what's going on in Abraham's story. So to understand Abraham's story, we can go back to the back story. We reach all the way back Really, we can reach, we reach all the way back to Genesis 1, but we're going to just reach back to Genesis 3 here. And in Genesis 3, a number of weeks ago, we saw the overthrow of humanity by the adversary, the ruin of humanity and the beginning ruin of humanity's world. That's the crisis of the narrative, that Adam and Eve, who were the king and queen, the priests, king and queens of the world, lost the world's throne. They lost their priestly function. They're kicked out of the garden. They're heading back into dust. That's the crisis of the narrative. The world has become the possession of the adversary, Satan. But all was not lost. Because in Genesis 3.15, God gave a promise that a descendant, a son of Eve, would arise And this son of Eve would come and he would overthrow the adversary and return humanity back to their priestly throne in the world. And so ever since the days of Eve, the righteous among the world, the God-fearers among the world have watched and looked and waited for this promised serpent-crushing son 
to arrive. And gradually, a righteous line begins to emerge in Genesis 1 through 11. The promise of a deliverer was given to Eve, and then it was passed on down to Seth, her third son. And then from Seth, it's, it found its way generations later to Noah. And then from Noah, it passed to his son Shem, but then, as we saw last week, human language was, uh, was confused at Babel. Humanity was dispersed throughout the world. And for many long years, it might have seemed that the promise had petered out and had been lost. But it had not been lost. As humanity wandered over the earth as a result of the dispersion at Babel, were introduced at the end of Genesis 11 to another wanderer, Abraham. So Abraham comes into the story here at the end of Genesis 11. And the first lesson we learn from Abraham's story regarding hope is that no one is beyond hope. Abraham is introduced to us in verse 1130 as a man without an heir and the husband of a barren wife. Now, it might be tempting for us just to skip on past that and to get to the main event, but that's something that we need to pause on. We can't just skip past it. In Abraham's day, to be without an heir was a major problem, a significant problem. At this point in biblical history, folks in the world only had a very sketchy knowledge of the afterlife. What you and I take for granted as Christians being revealed to us through all the pages of the later pages of the Old Testament and into the New Testament, they, they just didn't have that revelation and that knowledge. The, when you died in the patriarchal mindset, when you died, you went into the grave. That was the end. There was some shadowy existence, some bodiless existence. It was all a bit of a mystery. It wasn't desired. It wasn't looked to. It wasn't the hope to which people leaned into. The only life that mattered in the days of the patriarchs, and really this goes all the way up until the time of the Jewish exile, where they begin to get a prophetic word that there's actually a resurrection of the dead. The only life that mattered in the days of the patriarchs was the one lived in the here and the now. There was no great by and by in which to live forever. And so the only way that you could live forever, the only way that you could carry on throughout the years was to live forever through your offspring. That's how they thought about living forever. So to be barren was to be a dead man walking. A barren woman or a man who died without an heir was often considered cursed of God. Indeed, when you look throughout the pages of the Old Testament, prior particularly to the time of the exile, when God begins to reveal the resurrection, when God wanted to punish an especially wicked king or an especially wicked priest or an especially wicked prophet, he would cut them off entirely. He would cut their line off from the face of the earth. He would wipe their name from the face of the earth by eliminating their posterity. It was the ancient equivalent of being sent to hell. So when God brought the most severe judgment upon a person, he brought it upon that person and wiped their line out. They were no longer remembered upon the earth. They had been cut off from the land of the living. So when we read that Abraham was without a child and that Sarah was barren, we're reading that Abraham was in a very bad way. 
Paul will go on to really underscore this point of Abraham's life in Romans 4, which we're going to get to when we get to Romans 4. So when we're introduced to Abraham, he's a dead man walking, cut off from the land of the living without hope. He's probably considered cursed of God. He's doomed to descend into a shadowy underworld and be forgotten for forever. And yet, this doomed man, this dead man who is walking, is the one to whom God comes and makes an extraordinary promise. God tells Abraham that he will make him into a great nation, that his descendants will become great and they will bring a blessing to the whole world. And indeed, we read later on in the Genesis story in the account of Abraham's life that eventually God did give to Abraham a miraculous son born to him and Sarah in their old age. And then through Isaac came Jacob, and then through Jacob came the 12 tribes of Israel. One of the tribes was Judah, and out of Judah came Jesus, the promised son of Eve, the one who comes to undo the work of the serpent. And here's the first lesson we learn from Abraham's story. No one is beyond hope. No one is too far gone. We, like Abraham, come into the world and sit in a place of deadness and need and inability. Left to our own devices, we are without hope in this world. And then God steps into our lives and he makes us a promise that he will deliver us through another miraculous son, his son, Jesus Christ. Just as Isaac brought new life to Abraham, so Jesus brings new life to us. Death will not always reign. Sorrow will not always prevail. Pain will not always pierce. No matter how long we've been stuck, no matter how dark the night or how deep the pit, God meets us where we are and delivers us through his son. So I don't know what hopeless situation you're up against this morning. Maybe you come in here this morning in the midst of a health crisis or a financial crisis or perhaps a relational crisis or maybe it's all three of them combined at the same time or maybe you're the crisis. It's the toughest crisis of all. Maybe you're the problem that you can't seem to solve and you've played your best card and then you played your last card and now you're out of cards and you've come up empty and you don't know where to go from here. The problem seems too big or too complicated or it's been around too long and it's too long standing. And when you look at your resources that you have to solve the problem, you've got nothing. And your lack of resources has landed you right smack dab in the middle of a big pile of hopelessness. Now, not all of you are facing such a hopeless situation this morning, but some of us are. And if that's you, be reminded this morning that God is a miracle-working God, a God of redemption, a God of transformation, a God of deliverance. He is a God who speaks reality into existence, who calls things that are not 
as though they were, and so they become. He can make light out of darkness, life out of death, joy out of sorrow. What he blesses, no one can curse. So in what area of your life do you need to believe that God's blessing is bigger than the curse that you are facing? Where do you need to reclaim the promises of God to work and to act on your behalf? No one is beyond the hope that God provides. God can and does overcome our trials through the miracle working power of the Son. Abraham was dead and without hope. And yet God came to him and promised him life. And God promises life to us too. Now, some of you might be saying, right, okay, it's all well and good. But that life that you're talking about, that's like for the distant future, like after we die. What does God's promise have to do with us here in the present? I mean, God promises to give me life in the face of death but he doesn't promise to fix my marriage or help me with my kids or solve my business problems. So really all that anyone can do is just the best that they can do. All that we have to do now is just wait the long wait until we die. But that misses a key point of Abraham's story, which we pick up in Genesis 15. So flip over to Genesis 15. And Paul's going to pick this up as well in Romans chapter 4. The second thing we learn from Abraham's story about hope is the hope of God's promise begins to come true even now when we receive it in faith. The hope of God's promise begins to come true even now when we receive it in faith. Abraham, we can read through 14 and, or 13 and 14 and 15, goes on to become a prominent man of means. He's got great herds and flocks of sheep. At one point, he goes to rescue his nephew Lot and he, from a battle, and he takes with him 318 armed men from his household who are his servants. So if you have a picture of Abraham and the patriarchs as kind of like these quiet, nomadic little people with their tent and like their 14 sheep and their three sons and a servant, you've got the wrong picture. Abraham probably has upwards of a 1,000 servants that are his. His flocks are extraordinary. Wherever he goes, people know that he has arrived. He parlays with kings when he goes down into Egypt. So do his sons. Abraham is a prominent man of means, but he has no heir. He still has not produced an offspring. The promise given to him in chapter 12 still hangs unfulfilled by the time we get to chapter 15. It's 15 years later and still no son. At this point in chapter 15, Abraham is going to leave all that he owns to his servant, Eliezer, probably the head of his servants, its steward. I mean, this is, this is bad. This is as bad as the first season of Downton Abbey. You know what I'm saying? I mean... Who is Lord Grantham going to give the Abbey to? We don't know, right? But then in chapter 15, the Lord again appears to Abraham and restates the promise that was given in chapter 12. God says, no, 
you will indeed produce an offspring, and that person shall be your heir. And I always thought, poor Eleazar, you know, that poor servant. He was like, I was getting everything, and then now I'm getting nothing. He's probably trying to be a good servant where he's like, oh, Abraham, I'm so happy for you that you're <laughs> getting a son. Any case, uh, enough of Eleazar. So God says, look to the heavens. Number the stars if you can. So shall your offspring be. Then we get to Genesis 15, 6. Here's where I want us to pay attention. Look at Abraham's response to God's promise. Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. This is a super important verse. It's the verse that Paul picks up in Romans chapter 4. He spends an entire chapter in Romans 4 expounding the implications of this verse, not just for Abraham's life, but then how it applies even into our life. This verse, Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted it, or a lot of your translations may have the term credited. Uh, it's another way this gets translated. I'm going to stick with that translation because I think it's a little bit clearer to the point that uh, Paul will make uh, from this passage. Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Okay, now recall, if you will, from previous sermons, we talked about this uh, a number, number of uh, months ago, about the biblical conception of righteousness. So often we can tend to think in our modern uh, vocabulary that righteousness is like the equivalence of moralness, right? And so if a person is righteous, that means they're moral. But in the Old Testament conception of righteousness, one of the main conceptions of righteousness was not the idea of God's morality, when we talk about God's righteousness, but rather God's uh, propensity to save his own, God's willingness to rescue and deliver his people. So when we're reading about righteousness, when the scriptures talk about God acting righteously or bringing his righteousness, that's the scripture's way of saying he's coming to the rescue. My God is a righteous God means my God will come to my rescue. My God will save me. My God will deliver me. It's talking about God's commitment to keep his covenant with his people. We want God to be righteous on our behalf. We want God to come to our rescue. So in Abraham's story, now follow me on this, the birth of Isaac would eventually, that would eventually come to pass, would be God's righteous deliverance of Abraham. Abraham is dead. He has no heir. He needs God's righteousness. He needs God's deliverance. He needs God to step in and save him out of his dead plight. And God steps in in his righteousness and gives him Isaac. And Isaac is God's righteousness that is given to Abraham. But the promise of deliverance and the deliverance of the promise don't always come at the same time. It's how it so often is in our lives with God, right? God makes promises to us. But the thing that he's promised, we have to wait for. And that's where faith comes in. When God made the promise to Abraham, Abraham, the scripture tells us, believed God. And then God credited to Abraham righteousness. 
And what does this mean exactly? God credits to Abraham righteousness. Genesis 15, 6 is teaching us that from the point that Abraham believed the promise of God's righteous deliverance, that righteous deliverance was credited to him in advance. So the Hebrew term that's translated count or to credit is often used as an accounting term or a bookkeeping term. That's how it's used here. And because Abraham believes the promise of God, God credits righteousness to Abraham in advance of the actual fulfillment of the promised righteousness. So God promises the righteousness of a son. It's going to come down the road. Abraham believes the promise of this righteousness that's going to come. And because of his faith, God gives him, as it were, a down payment. He credits some of this future righteousness to Abraham. And Abraham begins to live into this righteousness that's going to come down the road. The Apostle Paul picks up Abraham's story in Romans 4. So flip over in your Bible to Romans 4 so we can make a few comments there. And this is precisely the point that he makes. And he applies it to you and I. Abraham, through faith, Paul says, began to enter into God's righteous deliverance from the moment he believed, even before he received the actual promised deliverance. In other words, Abraham, by believing the promise, became, from the first moment of faith, a partaker of the promise. Because of Abraham's faith, it was as though God promised God's promised future righteousness raced backwards in time and encountered Abraham's life in the present right at that moment. Isaac hadn't been born yet, but through Abraham's faith, God's saving activity was already in motion the moment that Abraham believed. So that was true of Abraham's life. God was working and active and guiding Abraham all the way up to the birth of Isaac. So you go on to read the rest of Abraham's story. It's not as though God made this promise, said, I'll see you in 15 years, good luck, and left. All right, God stays present with Abraham. He's working in Abraham's life. He's redemptively working to bring about the thing that he had promised. And Paul says that just as God credited in advance this final righteousness ahead of time to Abraham, he credits righteousness ahead of time to us as well. So look in verse 23, 24. Verse 23 of chapter 4 in Romans. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who was raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Paul is drawing a connection. He sees the gift of Isaac to Abraham as Abraham's new life. And he sees the gift of Jesus to us as our new life. And he says, just as Abraham got the gift ahead of time through faith, we get the gift ahead of time through faith in Jesus. It becomes true in our lives already when we believe it. Even though we have not yet received the fulfillment of God's promised redemption, none of us have been raised from the dead yet. Christ has not come the second time and righted all the wrongs. Right? He's not returned us yet to our throne in the fullest sense. 
Even though we have not yet received the fulfillment of God's promised redemption, we have nonetheless entered into that redemption through faith. We don't have to wait all the way until the end, to the day of judgment, to see God work. God has not left us to ourselves in the meantime. He is living and active here and now when we believe his promise. And maybe that's a word you need to hear this morning. Because maybe you believe in God and you believe that he's going to come through in the end. But in your mind, when you say he'll come through in the end, what you mean by the end is the very end, the end end. And you don't really have much hope between the giving of the promise and the ultimate fulfillment of the promise. And so when you think about your present trials in the here and the now, you don't think about them in faith. So for instance, maybe you're not parenting in faith. You're not parenting, perhaps, with a confident, hopeful expectation about what God will do for you and your children as you look to him in faith. And all you see are the trials and the troubles and the downward pull of the culture. And so you just sort of wring your hands and sigh and you hope for the best, because what, what can a parent really do? Not much, but what can God do? See, that's the thing you're forgetting. Maybe you can't do much with the situation that's before you in your parenting troubles. But what can God do in that situation? That righteous deliverance that he is going to grant you in the last day has already broken into the present, and he is living and active and working. Maybe you're not working out your marriage struggles in faith. You have no confident expectation about what God will do in your marriage. You're just sort of doing the best you can. But you're like, do you know what it's like to be married to him? Do you know what it's like to be married to her? I mean, this is kind of the best that I'm going to be able to do. Yes, the best that you're going to be able to do, but not the best that God's going to be able to do to do. Maybe you're not managing your financial troubles in faith. Maybe you're not battling against your sin in faith. Maybe you're not living out your friendships or employment in faith. You've forgotten the second lesson of Abraham's life, that when you take hold of God's larger redemptive righteousness by faith, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to deliver you from the ravages of sin and to give you new life forever eternally in the kingdom of God, that redemptive righteousness is credited to you in the here and the now. You don't have to wait for it until the end. Perhaps you've forgotten the words of Jesus that according to our faith, it will be done to us. And we're trying to face trials and struggles and temptations and tribulations, but we're not facing them in faith. And if it doesn't seem like God is working and active in your trials and tribulations and your struggles, maybe it's because you're not approaching them in faith. Jesus meant something when he said, according to our faith, it will be done to us. 
God doesn't save up all of his redemptive righteousness till the end. Too many of us aren't experiencing the full redemptive power of God in our lives because our faith is too long-term. We're always looking out to the future, but the healing and the life and the joy that are coming on the last day are already breaking in to the present, and we can lay hold of that power here and now by faith. By faith, we believe that God is bigger and stronger than all the obstacles in our way, and is even and God is even now working in our lives to bring about his good purposes. Faith should make us optimists in the midst of our challenges. When we approach challenges, and Paul goes on to say this in chapter 5, you can read ahead, when we approach challenges, we should approach challenges with hope and optimism. Have you ever been a teacher or you've been taught by teachers but you're, you kind of know that general teaching principle, right? So like if a teacher comes into a new class in the first day of a new semester, let's say, and the teacher has it in her mind or his mind that the kids are just a bunch of doorknobs and troublemakers, that they don't care, they don't want to be there, and they're there to cause trouble. In three days, that's what the class will be. Because if you teach the kids under the assumption, in the opinion that they're just a bunch of troublemakers, they live up to that expectation and become that. But if you come into that same class with a confident expectation that they want to be there, they want to learn, that, that, they, that they are going to strive for excellence, so often they rise to that expectation. Our faith creates the reality. But here's the trick, though. What is it that we're having the faith in, right? Because what if the teacher steps into a class and they know that like what they've got in this class, like all the juvenile delinquents that have been kicked out of all the other classes, and their entire class really is that, right? There's no pattern of past performance to kind of guarantee future results that look positive. What is the teacher hoping then if there's so little hope to hope in in the students themselves? And this is where our hope needs to look beyond the situation and into the presence and person of God. We hope and we believe the best in our situation and in our trials, not because there is good in our situation, but because there is God in our situation. That's where we find our hope. Yes, it's true. It's true, and this is a point that we made on Wednesday at the Lenten service, it's true that not every hurt will be healed. And it's true that not every sin will be defeated. And I know that some of us, and I include myself in this category, some of us have been disappointed by faith. We've stretched out our hand in faith. We've leaned by faith into God's deliverance We've fallen short, and it seemed as though God didn't come through. And so maybe for many of us here this morning, it seems safer just to retreat back into a posture of long-term optimism, short-term pessimism. And it's also true, we looked at this again on Wednesday night, Psalm 88, not every psalm ends on an up note. Psalm 88 does not end on an up note. But here's the thing. 
Most of the Psalms do end on an up note. And sometimes I think we've let a Psalm 88 experience color our entire reading of the Psalms, as it were. The Psalms of our life. We take that one moment when it didn't end on the up note that we thought, and then we've discounted that God ever does that. But the majority of Scripture, the majority of the Psalms, the majority of how God works is on an up note. He delivers us, He comes to our rescue. Don't let your disappointments undercut your confidence that God's larger promise of righteousness is even now working all things together for your good. In Acts chapter 12, you have this account. We've given this account of James, the disciple of Jesus, is arrested by Herod. And Herod can see that it's going to make the Jews happy if he kills James. And so he puts James to death with the sword. The Jews are happy, and so he goes out and he arrests Peter. This text tells us that all the saints come together and they're praying for Peter. And then God sends an angel and delivers Peter. Well, I can tell you, those saints were praying for James too. And God didn't send an angel for James. And did the saints say, you know what, this prayer thing... Doesn't work. God's deliverance, so overrated. He's got Peter. He's a goner now. Let's just all go into long-term optimism, short-term pessimism. They didn't. They had prayed for James. God didn't answer, but it didn't stop them from praying for Peter. And God sent an angel for Peter and delivered him miraculously. The Lord sees and knows our plight. He cares for us. And he will move on our behalf as we believe So let's approach our problems and our challenges with an optimism born of faith that even now we have already entered into God's redemptive righteousness. Let's live with a confident expectation that God will meet us in the midst of our difficulties and our challenges, and he will work miraculously for our good. Amen?